Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Today we're going to talk about prior authorization. Prior authorization, or prior auth, is a process that requires healthcare providers to obtain advance approval from health plans before a prescription or medical service qualifies for payment. Now, while health plans contend prior auth is necessary to control costs and prevent fraud, physicians and other providers find these programs to be time-consuming barriers to the delivery of treatment. Hello, and welcome to the collective voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Albright. I am Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous Payments, Z-E-L-I-S. I'm also the Communications Committee Chair for Weedy. That's W-E-D-I, the work group for electronic data interchange, and Weedy produces this podcast. So we're talking about prior auth, and we have in our virtual studio today representatives of the American Medical Association who tell us about the AMA's recent survey of physicians about prior auth. We're excited to talk today to Tyler Scheid, Senior Policy Analyst at the AMA, and Heather McComas, Director of Administrative Simplification Initiatives at the AMA. Tyler and Heather, glad to have you on The Collective Voice. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Good, good. So, Heather, I'll start with you. Uh, Maybe tell me a bit about what uh, you and Tyler do at the AMA, and then give me a a little history of the whole prior authorization issue. Uh, Has this issue been around for a while, or, or is this a new thing? Yeah, sure. Thanks. So I lead the AMA's Administrative Simplification Initiatives team. And as such, I focus with my um, colleagues on reducing administrative burdens for physician practices. And I'd say the lead physician burden that we focus on is prior authorization. This um, topic has been a huge concern for our members for a number of years, but it seems that the angst and the noise in this issue has really grown over the past five to seven years, to be sure. We hear more and more all the time for physicians about concerns they have, um, both just about the amount of time they're having to spend on completing prior authorizations. But what the real um, challenge, and I think that the big problem is for physicians, is the concern about the way this process can interfere with delivery of timely care to their patients. It really is a, a moral injury to them if they know that they're ordering a service that will help their patient be well and the patient can't access it due to prior authorization requirements. So um, definitely has grown in interest and attention over the past couple of years. And I think that's even evident amongst the weedy crowd. I think there have been a lot of sessions um, in recent years at weedy conferences and weedy forums on prior authorization. So I think it really has captured the interest and attention of the industry across stakeholder groups. Very good, very good. And, and a little bit of history about the um, issue itself. There was a consensus statement a few years ago or some principles that were outlined. Yeah, sure thing. So the AMA has been um, kind of leading the charge on reform efforts of the past couple of years. The first major milestone was when we released in early 2017 the prior authorization and utilization management reform principles. And we released that document um, in a coalition with 16 other organizations representing physicians, medical groups groups, hospital pharmacists, and patients too. And this was a set of 21 common sense principles to improve the prioritization process 
basic things like ensuring that there is a clinical basis for these requirements, to improve the transparency of requirements to physicians and patients, to automate the process to improve efficiency, to ensure there's a continuity of care for patients when they undergo, undergo plan changes, and also to propose some possible alternatives to utilization management that wouldn't be so onerous for physicians and for patients. And so that document, again, came out in early 2017, and we used it as a way to start a conversation with health plans about preauthorization reforms. So um, the AMA joined with other national provider associations with American, American Pharmacists Association, Medical Group Management Association, American Hospital Association, and we invited uh, AHIP, America's Health Insurance Plans, and also the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association into a conversation with us, starting with those original principles that were um, developed by provider and patient groups and said, you know, this is a big problem. I think we can all agree it's a big problem. What can we come to some kind of consensus on about how to improve this. And we came up with that consensus statement on improving the prior authorization process, which was released in early 2018 with those other organizations. And it's a really important landmark in the conversation on this issue because obviously it's a contentious topic. Um, providers have their thoughts about prior authorization and health plans have a very different view, but we agreed that the process was in need of improvement. We all agreed on that. And we came up with some kind of broad agreement on things that could be improved that would hopefully make this less onerous for everyone involved and also ensure that patients can access the care they need. So that document talks about reducing the overall volume of prior authorization, again, improving transparency. That's a really key issue, automating the, the process, and also, again, ensuring that um, patients who are changing between health plans um, have continuous care and their care isn't disrupted by prioritization requirements when they're changing plans. Very good. And, and, um, and it, it sounds like you may have already answered this uh, contained within the consensus statement and the, and the prior authorization principles, but what, what is the ideal state? It's not to get rid of prior authorizations altogether, but tell us a bit more about where, where you would like or AMA would like the prior authorizations to, to land. Yeah, thanks a lot for pressing that question, because I think sometimes um, people assume that our goal is to completely get rid of prior authorization. And I think that, um, you know, I, some of our members definitely, you know, that would be their nirvana, but that is just not a realistic starting point for a collaborative, constructive conversation between providers and health plans. You know, WEDI is a consensus, multi-stakeholder organization, and we very much approach this issue with that kind of mindset. We need to improve things, and we realize that we need to kind of come to agreement, and everyone needs to give a little bit here. So our goal is to really right-size the process, to reduce the overall volume of prior authorization requirements, to get rid of low-value prior authorizations. In other words, if a service is almost always approved, I think we can all agree that's a waste of time and money for everyone involved, the provider and um, certainly the health plan, but also the patient too, because all that's really been accomplished is that we've delayed their care. So, um, you know, the, I think our ideal state would be, you know, to get rid of unnecessary prior authorizations, but when it is used um, to ensure that it is a timely, transparent process that does not get in the way of patients getting their care, that we're not seeing patients having to wait weeks or even months to get a service that they need to be well or to diagnose their medical condition. Very good. Thank you, Heather. So, Tyler, I'll, I'll turn to you. Tell us a little bit about this most recent survey. How long has the AMA been conducting this survey, and, and what kind of questions did you ask? 
Yeah, thank you. I'm really happy to be here to show this info. Um, yeah, I started at the AMA in 2016, and I've been a part of this survey uh, every year since since I started. We started in uh, the two weeks after Thanksgiving every year. We run this, um, and you know, for the 2021 iteration, it was a 40 question web based survey, uh, and we and you know inquire what physicians' experiences are like with PA and what its impact is is like on patients. Um, so the general breakdown of the survey, it's 1,000 respondents, it's 60% specialists, uh, and 40% primary care. Um, we screen every respondent to ensure they're currently practicing in the U.S., uh, provide 20 or more hours of patient care each week, and complete medical services and or prescription medication PAs uh, during a typical week of practice. Um, so... From this one survey, we've released multiple uh, different documents, you know, sort of summary infographics breaking down the questions. Um, the one we've released every year since we started the survey is our sort of wave one um, overall summary infographic. Uh, and on this one, we break down the questions uh, based on whether they assess the impact of PA on patients, physicians, and for this year, we added uh, employers. You know, so in general, we keep the survey questions uh, pretty consistent year to year. Uh, but we will switch them up um, whenever it's necessary. You know, new things arise and we're more interested in learning more about different aspects. You know, it's an ever-evolving challenge. So we want to learn more about different things. Uh, and, you know, for example, in 20, 2020, uh, we asked some questions uh, related to COVID-19. And this year we swapped out those questions for some more employer-centric ones. So, um, you know, one thing I want to note also before I get into the results uh, so, again, like I said, while they remain, uh, questions remain relatively consistent year to year, we tend to avoid doing any kind of trending with the results. Uh, you know, our, who, we, who we survey uh, is not like the exact same every year. So we try to, you know, it's very, very consistent, but we, we tend to avoid uh, listing out year to year results. So I just want to make note, note of that. Okay, so. Uh, first, for wave one, you know, the summary document, document uh, it provides much of the pertinent impact data from the survey. Uh, and the second wave, the wave two summary document, which I'll discuss next, um, assesses payer performance relative uh, to the promises made in the consensus statement that Heather mentioned. Um, so if you have access to the actual summary document for wave one, um, you'll start on the front page, which we have the patient impact questions. Um, so if you look at top left, you can see that 93% uh, physicians reported that their patients, at least sometimes, experience care delays due to PA. And to the right, 82% of physicians reported that PA can at least sometimes lead to treatment abandonment. Um, so in the middle bar here, one of our more jarring stats, it gets the red box for a reason. Uh, so the past three years, we've you know, asked a series of questions uh, about patients experiencing serious adverse events because of PA. Uh, in the, you can see in the middle there that 34% uh, of physicians report that the PA has led to a serious adverse event for a patient in their care. Uh, when we ask this question, we provide the FDA definition of a serious adverse event, uh, which includes death, hospitalization, disability or permanent bodily damage uh, or other life-threatening event. Um, you know, so we started asking this question three years ago, uh, and we were really alarmed at the results we got back then. And it's, you know, every year we've asked more granular questions. And unfortunately, the results continue to demonstrate, you know, the severity of the problem that PA poses, you know, really serious outcomes occurring. Uh, so some of the breakdowns, you know, 24% of respondent physicians this year revealed that a patient in their care has been hospitalized due to PA, 
18% reported PA, let, PA has led to a life-threatening event or required intervention to prevent permanent impairment or damage. And 8% reported that PA led to a patient's disability, permanent bodily damage, and general anomaly, birth defect, or death, which, um, again, that number uh, is very, very high. Uh, you know, any, anything above zero is very alarming. So that, that's just always tough to see that number. Um, so some other patient stuff on the bottom of the page, uh, you know, we provide uh, stats related to clinical validity of PA programs and the impact of PA on clinical outcomes. Uh, so on the left, 30% of physicians uh, reported that PA criteria are rarely or never based on evidence-based medicine and or guidelines from national medical specialty societies. And uh, on the right there, 91% of physicians reported that PA can have a somewhat or significant negative impact on clinical outcomes. So that is the patient impact side. If you flip it over on the back, uh, you know, we have the physician impact side. Um, and here we you know, have the number of uh, PAs per week, which was this year was an average of 41 PAs per physician per week uh, as the reported workload. And uh, this workload consumes 13 hours of physician and staff time uh, each week. Um, again, like I said before, while we don't trend these things uh, year to year, uh, it's worth noting that the number of PAs was the highest uh, we've ever had reported, uh, and the uh, total time consumed did did drop down a little bit. So there is some you know, indication there that automation efforts uh, on the behalf of payers ha have been working to reduce the time, um, but unfortunately, uh, the stats to the right of that sort of you know, indicate that, that maybe if the hours are going down, that does, does not necessarily mean the burden has been reduced. Um, so uh, this year, two in five uh, physicians reported that they have staff who work exclusively on PA, and 88% of physicians reported that the burden associated with PA is high or extremely high. Um, yeah, so that we've covered patient and provider impacts for a number of years, and this year we added uh, some stuff on the impact of employers, uh, on employers. Um, and I think this is, you know, we'll editorialize a little on this uh, just because I think it's, a, you know, easy to miss the, the impact that PA has on employers, uh, right? So we were interested in hearing, you know, if, um, you know, one thing we hear often is that the PA programs are as, uh, they're as robust as they are because uh, employers uh, sort of demand this level of coverage, right? They want to keep their insurance costs down, and we are curious if, you know, what's the balance here, if, if this is a cost benefit that's really benefiting employers. Um, so we wanted to see, you know, is PA maybe impacting performance at work or, in, you know, just the workforce's ability to get to their job and do their job effectively. So uh, we asked a series of questions to sort of get down to this. You know, first we asked uh, physicians that responded if they treat patients who are between the ages of 16, excuse me, 18 and 65 and are actively participating in the workforce. Uh, and 91% of our respondent physicians said that, yes, they do treat people that fall within this category. Um, so 51% of those respondents that do treat members of the workforce uh, said that they believe PA has, in fact, interfered with a patient's ability to work and perform his or her job responsibilities. So, um, you know, to us, and that, that indicates that, you know, half of half of the workforce, basically, in a, in a weird way, or however you want to kind of look at it, you know, at least half of the physicians responding uh, that treat workforce members say that PA is having an, an impact on employees' ability to perform their job functions, right? So, obviously, there's 
maybe some gaps in this, you know, truly understanding like the impact and the extent of it that, that it has. But for that number of physicians to feel that it's having an impact on their employee, on employees, you know, we just push employers to really think, uh, you know, is this level of coverage uh, and the delays that are, you know, associated with PA and the negative patient outcomes and all these things, is that really worth the money you're saving if you can't have your employees doing their jobs well? So, um, definitely a, an area of advocacy we have investigated more. Uh, you know, we're very, we think this might be an interesting avenue to, to enact change, you know, approaching employers and sort of educating them on this. So, um, you know, I don't know if Heather wants to speak to anything more on that or if we'll talk about it a little later on, but I'll throw it to her for any additional things before I go to wave two. Yeah, thanks, Tyler. And I think, you know, thinking about prior authorization from an employer angle is really interesting. It's something, as, as Tyler just indicated, it's a, it's a new kind of approach for us, but I think it's a, a kind of um, interesting mix of a stakeholder group that is has very strong cost control concerns. Obviously, employers need to watch their healthcare costs for their employees, but at the same time, they really do need their employees to be well and healthy and productive. And so it's, uh, I think they're kind of an excellent like use case for balancing these two things, you know, and keeping cost um, within reason, but at the same time, ensuring that patients are getting the care they need in a timely fashion so that they have a high quality of life and they can come to work and be productive versus miss work because they can't get the care they need, or perhaps they're at work, but they're on the phone for an hour or two with their insurer trying to get their prioritization through. So I think it's a really interesting perspective that we um, hope to continue exploring in the next couple of years in the survey. Um, And as Tyler mentioned too, along with kind of assessing physicians' um, experience with the impact of prior authorization on patients and their ability to work um, kind of from the employer angle and also on practice burdens, we also have been asking physicians their perception of the reforms outlined in the consensus statement and if they were seeing any progress. Um, you know, we were very hopeful when we released the consensus statement on approving the prior authorization process in early 2018 that we would really start see- making some headway on these improvements. And so we asked questions specifically um, about these kind of five areas of change outlined in the consensus statement. Um, the first was if, you know, health plans are selectively applying prior authorization um, through programs such as gold carding that would exempt physicians with um, high prior authorization approval rates from their prior authorization requirements. We asked them if they're seeing a reduction in the overall volume of prior authorizations that they're being required to be to do by health plans. Um, we asked them how easy it is to determine if a prior authorization require is required for a drug or a service. We asked them, um, you know, if prior authorization is disrupting um, continuity care for their patients. And we also asked them about their experiences with actually doing prior authorization and are they able to do it in an automated way using electronic standards or are they still stuck essentially sitting on the phone when they were doing prior authorizations? And unfortunately, as Tyler is going to share with us, we have not seen a lot of movement forward over the past four and a half years um, since the consensus statement was introduced. Before we get to that, uh, Tyler, if you would just pause on the uh, the gold card and the idea of selected application of prior auth, and, and I ask you just to pause and explain it a little bit more, just because we've seen uh, quite a few 
states this year, especially passing gold card legislation. And we'll get to that question a little bit later. But if you would just explain um, what is meant by that uh, selective application of prior op. Yeah, so uh, you know, common term uh, used for this is gold carding. Uh, that's the acronym that uh, they just released a you know, proposed bill on a federal level that is the Gold Card Act of 2022. Um, so that is the common term. Um, it may be uh, you know, a misleading term uh, and may, may lead to kind of a prejudice against gold carding, but from a high level, uh, the concept is you know, uh, you know, the idea that uh, one person, uh, one, one physician may be submitting many, many different PAs uh, that are always approved, right? And it's sort of a waste of time and resources uh, for the payer to review these, for the provider to submit them, uh, because the assumption is that this person's always submitting, uh, you know, appropriate uh, um, uh, service requests, right? So the idea of gold carding is that you assess people's performance, you know, provider's performance, if they have been approved uh, above a certain threshold uh, within a certain time frame. Uh, you know, sometimes it's per service, sometimes it's on a prescriber level across the board, but more often than not, it's, uh, you know, a per service uh, approval. They will be able to uh, avoid the PA process for that specific service for a certain period of time. So the idea is to just sort of, you know, uh, in a way, reward, uh, you know, the pr provider for doing the right thing, you know, always submitting appropriate requests and, you know, on the other end, the uh, the payer doesn't have to worry necessarily that this provider is uh, submitting uh, inappropriate requests, right? So the, the actual PA process isn't really that necessary for them. So yeah, it's the idea is to save money on both sides just for unnecessary work is ultimately the goal. Good, terrific. So if you want to go ahead and talk about yeah. that. So uh, yeah, as Heather said, I'll sort of just roll through the different um, questions here that addressing each one. So for, you know, uh, before I go, actually, uh, the wave two document, uh, just, it's not titled wave two. It's actually titled, you know, measuring progress, uh, in improving prior authorization. It's got a slightly different header, uh, than the wave one summary document. Um, just so want to make sure no one was looking for wave one and two word verbiage, uh, that wasn't there. So measuring progress and improving PA is the, is the document. So, uh, bottom left, you know, regarding selective application of PA, the gold carding question, um, you know, only 9% of respondent physicians report that health plans they participate in uh, offer providers exemptions from PA. So even a gold card plan uh, offering it all, not necessarily they enrolled in it or participate in it, uh, you know, whether or not they're not aware that they exist is, is a possibility. But I think overall, it's, uh, this number has stayed relatively low and stagnant uh, since we released the consensus statement. So, uh Moving on to the bottom right of the graphic, uh, we ask about you know, PA program review and volume adjustment. Um, you know, and unfortunately, 84% of respondents report that both medical and prescription PA volume uh, has increased over the last five years. Um, I also note that another side question, you know, physicians also report that on average one in five uh, prescriptions uh, require PA. Uh, moving on to the back, uh, we have the transparency and communication regarding PA uh, question. And this one, 65% of physicians report that it is difficult to determine a prescription requires PA, and 62% report is difficult to determine a medical service requires PA. Um, last two things, uh, the continuity of patient care, 88% report the PA uh, interferes with the continuity of care for their patients. And uh, the final bucket about automation, um, 
it's a table, so it's not quite as clean of a stat presentation as the others. Uh, but the high level is that phone continues to be the most commonly used tool to compete, complete a PA request uh, for both prescriptions and med services with uh, 56 and 59% uh, respectively reporting that is always or often used. Uh, fax has gone down a little in recent years, but it still continues to be a common tool with 47 and 45% uh, reporting it. It's always often used for prescription or medical services, uh, respectively. And um, there are some other, you know, one other thing to point out here that there are other tools, uh, you know, more online, uh, EHR, you know, EPA tools, uh, other portal um, type tools have gotten, have improved and they're, they've been more utilized in recent years. Uh, but overall, um, you know, portals, we do not believe that leads to, uh, the best improvement in the process that we, we could have. It still requires a lot of different portal management, uh, you know, people, right. You have to have multiple logins, different things. So it doesn't improve the process quite to the degree that, uh, fully integrated, uh, EPA or electronic prior auth, uh, service through your EHR will. Um, and one stat that we year to year, we're hoping goes up a little more, uh, but there isn't really, at least from a provider perspective, there's not awareness of EPA tools being offered through EHRs and only 26% of physicians report uh, that EPA is even available through their EHR. So again, these numbers, uh, this is perception of physicians, right? So whether or not they're a little high or a little low uh, relative to the actual uh, situation, I, I think it always just comes back to, um, you know, if this something is different than from a payer perspective than what these numbers say, uh, there needs to be more communication about these things and education uh, for providers to know that EPA is available, to know that all these different, you know, how can I, is gold carding available, stuff like that. So we always try to push for, you know, there might, we might be getting, the providers might have this, uh, their perceptions wrong or a little off and we encourage payers to kind of, you know, educate if, if something is a little different there. Right, right. Very good, Tyler. And as we know, you know, perception is reality, right? <laughs> For, right. That's what we're faced with. Um, so maybe back to, uh, to you, Heather, on something that uh, Tyler touched on, this idea of automation. Uh, certainly the weedy audience is always interested in this. Um, and uh, it, it looks as though the survey says that not much has, has moved in terms of automation, and it certainly hasn't moved the needle much. Can you talk about a little bit about that? Do we have any... Uh, hope that automation might relieve some of this? And, and is, is that too high an expectation? You know, automation is critically important. You know, I, I often joke that I think that prior authorization is, you know, what is keeping fax <laughs> machine companies in business because I, I can't think of any other line of business that really uses faxes anymore. My goodness, it's so cumbersome and waiting by the machine and it doesn't go through. I mean, I think everyone kind of jokes about it, but it is really unfortunate that we're still tied up in these manual processes for something that's so important that's delaying patient care. Um, but we definitely think that automation has an important role and I know a lot of folks across different organization types are working hard on this in the weedy community. Um, uh, and we think, you know, obviously it can be, things can move a lot more quickly through an automated process, but we would encourage everyone to think about this more holistically, even if you're, you know, your main job is thinking about automating things. Cause we think that the, the reforms outlined in the consensus demand are really complementary. They all need to kind of work together to get the kind of whole package and making this 
better. Um, for example, um, as we've been talking about, you know, part of the consensus statement um, outlines reducing the overall volume and prioritization. And we think that's really important because bottom line is to digitize and to automate all the payers' different prioritization criteria. Let's be honest, that is a real Really heavy lift. That is a lot of programming work. And so if we could scale that back to a more manageable workload for everybody, it would be less of a heavy lift. We could get things automated and, you know, might many fewer years than it might take now for all the current volume of prioritization we have right now. Um, we also think, you know, the, the, the kind of complementary relationship between automation and some of these concepts, we really think that automation plays a really important role in proving the transparency of prioritization requirements. I mean, it's so hard right now for physicians and their staff to tell at the point of prescribing or ordering if a particular service requires prioritization for the patient that's in front of them. And there is a real, you know, digital and electronic angle to that. And so we think that, you know, there's a kind of marriage between the, the technology and the transparency policy there. Um, and then, you know, there's just some things, frankly, that um, automation, even if it was the best system possible, the most advanced technology we could ever have, it just won't fix. Uh, uh, for example, um, there was a recent report released a couple months ago by the Office of the Inspector General um, looking at prioritization and Medicare Advantage plans. And um, it raised some serious questions about the legitimacy of some of the clinical criteria being used um, in some cases. And the bottom line is, even if the process was perfectly automated, if it's being based on improper clinical criteria, it's still going to prevent the patient from getting the care they need. So this is a real concern. Um, and again, too, you could have a perfectly automated process, but if the patient switches plans and suddenly they have to start from scratch with a new plan, again, you've, you've disrupted their care. So I think that all of these reform areas are, are really key to getting to where we want to be on this issue. Very good. And, and has come, it's come up a number of times, but certainly on automation, um, you need the health plans buy in this as well. How do you see the payers and providers working together on, on all these issues? You know, I, I think it is really important that we work together. And again, this is really a contentious issue. It's a hard issue. Or, or take off my AMA hat here for a, a second, say, you know, I'm, I'm co-chair of the Wheaties Prioritization Subwork Group. And um, I enjoy that. Um, and I will say, though, I think it's been, I think it's one of the harder groups to, to work in because it, it's not an easy path between providers and payers on this issue. Everyone's pretty passionate on their side of the issue. But I think what one of the first thing that gives me heart um, for the future on this is that I think everyone recognizes that things could be better. I think it's not, I don't see anyone jumping up and down these discussions going, things are fine the way they are. So I take heart that we all recognize that things need to be fixed. So I think that in itself is an element of promise for the future. And then I go back to the consensus statement. You know, it was really um, a lot of months of work and um, tough discussions, honestly, to get to the agreement and the consensus statement between the provider and the health plan organizations. There were some bleak moments that we weren't sure we were going to be able to get to an agreement, but we did. And um, maybe it's a question of us kind of having a, a recommitment ceremony around the consensus statement, going back to these things that we agreed to. Again, they're 
It's nothing crazy. We're not saying, you know, providers are not demanding that we get rid of prior authorization. We're just saying be more judicious about it and improve the process. And so I think if we come back to this with level heads, I think we could make some more progress. And then finally, I think, you know, at the bottom line, we are all first and foremost patients. And I think if we can all approach our work from that angle and think about at the end of the day, I might be the patient on the receiving end of this prior authorization that might need care or might be my family member or friend and always keep that in our heads when we're working on this issue. It can keep, kind of be our North Star into getting things um, fixed. I love, I love that idea, Heather, and I'm going to have to apply this to other, other stages of my life um, that if you can get people to agree that there's something wrong, uh, <laughs> then you're 50% of the way there. I think that's a, that's a, great, that's a great idea. Um, so, so with all these issues, with the prior auth issue, do you think that legislation or regulation is necessary? We're, we're certainly seeing it at the state level, the, the gold card uh, idea. Uh, do you think um, federal and um, state regulation is necessary to... Yeah, you know, from our perspective, it certainly is. And, you know, as Tyler went through the statistics kind of um, measuring progress on reforming prior authorization since the release of the consensus statement four and a half years ago, we really aren't seeing much movement, unfortunately. And sometimes, you know, people need a little bit of a, a push to get things moving. And so we, we do think that um, federal and state legislation is necessary. There has definitely been a lot of movement over the past couple of years on the state legislative angle and some really kind of exciting work done there um, on kind of innovative ideas such as goal carding um, in Texas and also just kind of more comprehensive prioritization legislation addressing the, the issue from a variety of angles. And then um, more recently, we're actually seeing some legislative activity at the federal level, which is exciting as well. Um, currently, there is a um, bill, H.R. 3173, Senate version is 3018, the Approving Seniors Timely Access to Care Act of 2021. It would streamline and simplify the prioritization process for Medicare Advantage plans, um, and it would require these plans to offer a standardized electronic process for um, medical services, which is very exciting. I think something that's very much of interest to the Weedy community. It would also uh, require these plans to both improve the transparency of their requirements, but also to regularly report the outcomes of their prior authorization programs to, to Congress, which is um, which we think is transparency that's much needed to kind of shine a light on um, the impact of these programs. And you know, there is so much dissension today in um, our political world in America, but it's really interesting that, you know, this is not a, a partisan issue. Both Democrats and Republicans support this bill. There's overwhelming support right now um, in the House and growing support in the Senate. So we're really hopeful that this bill might be able to move um, by late, late in the year, which would be a great thing for America's seniors. We think it's just a really important step forward. And another Another important thing to, to mention is that a lot of the provisions are straight from that consensus statement that we keep talking about. These aren't like um, brand new ideas. There are things that both providers and health plans agreed to back in 2018. So we're very hopeful that um, the bill will continue to get um, growing support and actually move forward later this year. And there's also, um, we talked about gold carning um, so earlier in this discussion. And fairly recently, there was a, um, a federal gold carding bill that was introduced, H.R. 7995, um, the Gold Card Act of 2022. It's similar in its provisions to that Texas bill that passed 
Um, and it basically um, would allow physicians um, that um, are, have a prior authorization approval rate of 90% or higher for certain services to be exempt for prior authorization for those services for at least a 12 month period. And it out, also outlines kind of more operational aspects of how such programs would work and would um, allow physicians to appeal their gold card status if it was going to be revoked. So we think that's a, a very comprehensive and well thought out bill um, and a good complement to HR 3173. And uh, that would also apply to Medicare Advantage plans. And did ONC put out a request for information as well? For, uh... Yes, and I'm so glad you mentioned that. Um, and I think it's important to notice that um, to note that Weedy did respond to the ONC request for information on electronic prior authorization. I encourage folks to take a look at Weedy's comments, which were very well done. Um, the AMA also responded as well, and so. Um, I think this, um, you know, request for information came about because um, there was an earlier um, notice of proposed rule, rulemaking from CMS on electronic prior authorization that was released in late 2020, and that um, rule never moved forward due to the change in administration. But um, I think some of the comments that um, CMS got at the time were, you know, you're you're talking about payers, you know, supporting electronic prior authorization, but you know, it would be important for physicians and other healthcare professionals, electronic health records to actually support the technology too, because otherwise we're going to have a problem here. So ONC put out this request for information about creating a certification program for electronic prior authorization um, and, you know, asked for a lot of information and input from the industry on some um, nascent um, fire standards um, offered being developed through HL7, some really good work going on there through the Da Vinci Project. And, um, you know, just from our perspective at AMA, we think this is really promising work. We think that um, probably a, a bit more piloting definitely needs to be done before the technology should be re required on the ONC certification program. And then we are concerned that, um, you know, that this technology would be available and affordable for practices of all sizes. But um, I think it's a, you know, it's another signal that the federal government is very involved and engaged in um, improving prior authorization. So um, hopefully everyone will keep kind of working on this technology and um, ensuring its maturation so it will work well both for physicians and for, for health plans. Very good. Very good. Um, well, thank you, Heather and Tyler. Anything else you'd like to share uh, with our listeners? Any, any closing thoughts? I'll just jump in and say, uh, you know, we have a number of, you know, we've been working on this for many years. Uh, we, we developed uh, a number of you know, resources and, and places where people can find out more information uh, about prior auth. They can submit their stories. Uh, and, you know, people can visit fixprioroth.org uh, to walk through a little modules there and uh, just sort of hear some stories, see some videos uh, we've heard from, you know, the impact that PA can have. And I think it's, it's really, uh, you know, it takes it to another level when you see really the impact that this, these delays can have, you know, it's, it can lead to death, you know, where there are stories on there about the, the severity of all this. And, you know, I think people, you know, might just consider this, uh, you know, an annoyance, uh, you have to wait to get your, your medication, but a lot of times the, these are life and death scenarios and the delays are that bad. So, uh, I encourage everyone to go to fixprioroth.org. Uh, we also have a, a video series, uh, you know, nice little, cartoon series uh, that sort of outlines the benefits of prior author, electronic prior authorization. 
uh, and sort of walks you through 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 some things uh, you can do to get EPA in your practice. Uh, and CME uh, for our physician audience is also available in that. So I don't know if Heather wants to add anything to. No, um, yeah, again, like I just echo Tyler and encourage folks to visit fixprior.org. There's a way to um, send a message to your congressional representative um, to support that improving seniors' timely access to care legislation that I mentioned earlier. And, um, you know, so glad that Weedy um, is working hard on this issue too and happy to talk to anyone in the Weedy community about this at any time because we're both very passionate about this and really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. Very good. We do too. Thank you, Heather and Tyler. Uh, great discussion. Lots of information. We've been talking with Tyler Sheed, Senior Policy Analyst at the AMA, and Heather McComas, Director of Administrative Simplification Initiatives at the AMA. And this has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast, where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. You can find this episode and many more on our website, weedy.org. Thank you all for joining us, and be safe.